to the great work radio program. The great work radio and blog are features of Jesse Ward's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Hello and welcome to the Great Work Radio Program. I'm Jesse Waugh. I recently attended a graduate conference at the University of Cambridge in England, which was entitled Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic, and the History of Art. It was organized by Daniel Zamani, who is a PhD candidate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Marr. The two-day conference was set up to, quote, investigate the intersections between visual culture and the occult tradition, ranging from the material culture of primitive animism through medieval and renaissance depictions of witchcraft and demonology to contemporary fascination with the supernatural in popular culture. It is a rare thing for the subject, which could be colloquially referred to as occult symbology, to be the focus of a scholarly conference at a top university. And as such, I was more than enthusiastic to attend. This and several following episodes of the great work feature rudimentary recordings of a number of the lectures. Please bear in mind that the quality of the audio is lacking and also that the speakers refer to various images, icons, and objects which are not presented along with the audio. Most works mentioned should be accessible using an image search. The keynote lecture given by Dr. Ursula Sulakowska was a fascinating presentation of esoteric imagery cited from paintings, grimoires, and alchemical texts. Dr. Sulakowska is an expert in scholarly non-adept research into arcane iconography. She was a professor at University of Leeds and has published a number of books including Alchemy in Contemporary Art, The Alchemy of Light, Geometry and Optics in the Late Renaissance Alchemical Illustration, and The Sacrificial Body and the Day of Doom, Alchemy and Apocalyptic Discourse in the Protestant Reformation. Um, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Department of History of Art. Um, for this year's graduate conference on Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic and the History of Art, let me first say that I'm absolutely delighted that we have such fantastic lineup of speakers. Yet again, um, it's now the fourth graduate conference that we're doing with the department, and it's become a fantastic tradition for um, inviting speakers from other departments to show research on a topic chosen by graduate students. Um, and I'm absolutely thrilled that this year's topic is magic and occultism. We had an absolutely enthusiastic response to our call for papers with over 120 applications. Um, so choosing um, the right papers, putting the panels, was both great fun um, and somewhat traumatic for us. <laughs> but um, I was again reminded when Josephine and I were putting the papers together that all of the abstracts are really wonderful appetizers. And I'm sure most of you had a little look at the program. Um, it's going to be two very tense days of exposure to occultism in art history, with panels spanning um, a period from the Christian Middle Ages to the 20th century and the avant-garde innovative engagement with occultism. Topics are rich and diverse, uh, be it Renaissance magic stones, magic mirrors from the Islamic world, or the surrealist embrace of occultism and myth um, for political as well as poetic purposes. Um, of course, I'm particularly grateful to our keynote speaker, Dr. Ursula Shlokowska, um, she's been wonderfully generous at her time, um, and it's both a great pleasure for us and indeed a great honor 
that we have a keynote speaker who has made so many fantastic contributions to the field. I'm also very grateful to the Department of History of Art for their generous financial and indeed generous academic support of this event to Professor Jean-Michel Masson, who is currently head of the department, um, to Dr. Alexander Ma, who has joined the department this year and is currently Director of Graduate Studies, and to all of the other conveners, to Dr. Anna Gannon, Dr. Carolina Botres, Rachel Parrick, and Elizabeth Upper. They've all been fantastically generous with their time, um, particularly now that it's such a busy period in the department. And of course, my special thanks go to all the speakers um, who have come, some from not so far away, from London, or from apartments in Cambridge, and some from further afield, from the Netherlands, Italy, Germany, Romania, um, and the US. Um, I hope very much that you all will enjoy the conference. I think there's much to be learned in the papers, and hopefully much to be enjoyed. Um, but now let me hand over to Dr. Alexander Ma. Thank you for coming. Good morning. Um, I'm Alex Moran, Director of Graduate Studies. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing uh, this morning our keynote speaker. But before I do, I'd just like to second uh, Dan's welcome. It's wonderful to see so many of you here. Um, some of you have come a very long way to be with us, so we're, we're very grateful uh, to you for that, uh, for taking time out of your busy lives. Um, it, it's also a pleasure to, to thank the graduate students who have organised this event with considerable aplomb, having chosen a wonderful theme that has stimulated a tremendous response. Um, so our, our thanks go out to Emma, uh, to, to Josephine, to Gabriel and, uh, and Dan for having organised uh, this event and for having put together such, uh, such an impressive uh, programme of talks. Um, and now to our, our keynote speaker. I'm, I'm particularly pleased to give this introduction because I've long been an admirer of Dr. Shulikovska's uh, work. Ursula um, Shulikovska uh, is uh, currently honorary research fellow uh, in the School of Fine Arts at Leeds. She'll be known to all of you as one of the leading scholars of the history of alchemy and of alchemical illustration, particularly in relation to the Protestant uh, Reformation. She's uh, had a distinguished career teaching at the University of Sydney uh, and Queensland uh, and uh, uh, most recently Leeds. Her publications uh, are very wide-ranging. Uh, they include The Alchemy of Light, Geometry and Optics in Alchemical Illustration, the work of 1996, this was followed by The Sacrificial Body and the Day of Doom, Alchemy and the Public Discourse in the Protestant Reformation of 2000, and most recently, Alchemy in Contemporary Art um, of 2010. So she really brings, brings together the varied periods um, that uh, our speakers are going to be addressing over the next couple of days. Uh, she's in the process of uh, producing a uh, book on the Eastern European Renaissance and the Baroque, which is being published by CE Press and is forthcoming next year. Um, and she currently has new work uh, on alchemy, gender, and politics in progress. And we very much look forward to those, uh, those publications. Her title today is The Sexualization of the Virgin Mary Hieratic Religious Art in an Alchemical Context. Please join me in, in uh, welcoming Dr. Chilakas. very much for inviting me to this conference and may I say how delighted I am that such a topic has been chosen and such an extraordinary wide-ranging series of papers um, have been offered 
uh, you know, in the 30 years in which I've been involved in this field, I've seen it grow from absolutely nothing at all. In fact, I used to write papers saying that the study of alchemy is well developed in English literature and even in film, but there's nothing in art history. And suddenly here we are at one of the leading art history departments in the world, the room full of people, all of them working on it or interested on, on the issue of magic. Okay, so um, I'll begin. Right, alchemy, as the proto-science of chemistry and medicine, has also always been associated with religion, wherever encountered, whether with Taoism, um, Shaivism, Tantric Buddhism, or indeed, in this present place, Christianity. The, it's notable for its extraordinary symbols, both visual and verbal, and the problem has always been how to crack these open. Um, they are always accompanied by very lengthy texts which unfortunately obscure more than they enlighten you as to their meanings. So people have approached this with hammers and, and, and tongs, um, Jungian, Freudian psychology and psychiatry, linguistic studies which I've had a go at and I'm still working on are still very much um, in progress. James Elkins, whom you may know, has written about alchemy and art and he's in a way usefully uh, regarded our visual alchemical symbols like these as hieroglyphs, um, somewhere between a written and a visual sign. To my mind, this has limitations because it means you're dealing with a sign that is almost a kind of a patchwork quilt. And the other idea is, of course, something that the Surrealists particularly sponsored, that alchemy was a subversive activity that it aimed to undermine particularly the, um, the institutions, such as the religious institutions of its day, which were in cahoots with a kind of hierarchical political order, and that what the alchemists were doing was undermining them. Certainly the alchemists surrealists were aiming to do this. I think that we need to look at alchemical imagery in another way. Now I'm using two thinkers here. I'm using in particular the concept of the trace, le trait, uh, which is part of Jacques Derrida's ideas, and the trace is the transcendental signifier unifying the disparate and conflicting elements of a discourse. I've got two signifiers which I'll be pursuing here. It's the crescent moon and a crown of stars, which don't sound like much, but are actually will lead us to some very strange places indeed, believe me. The other one is Deleuze's concept of the fold, which I think that people, particularly up in Leeds, are beginning to seize on now. And this is the idea that there isn't a binary kind of reality, an inner world and an outer world, whether you're thinking of consciousness or of signs, which um, are, are in conflict, but that in fact the inner world is itself a fold, an involution of the outer world, which means that whether it's a sign or your own consciousness, you're getting um, a disparate, conflicting text in front of you. And I think what the alchemists were doing effectively was not so much going up to an image that they aimed to violate and desecrate as simply unfolding it to see what was there. Now we'd already use this concept, we call this deconstruction, but I think deconstruction can be a very violent process. And there's something about the fold that actually is less violent and I think it allows us to go to stranger places if we use it. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that as it is. 
so that in the present case, nothing is added to the original sign of the Virgin Mary by the alchemists. Rather, the potential is exploited alchemically, so that the image of the Virgin in alchemy releases a series of meanings already contained within her. Okay, so I've said that. Now, figurative alchemical imagery appeared in the late 14th century. It was far more complex than the earlier abstract ciphers used by Hellenistic and Arabic alchemists, such as you have there. And instead, you began to get this sort of thing. This is from Constantinus, and the other one was Briteus. And around 1370, they began to use religious imagery. And this is the first time that figuration and narrative appears in art. It's very, very late. Now, in her investigation of the origins of alchemical illustration, the scholar Barbara Obris long ago argued that the function of these new visual forms was as a strategy devised to outwit the scholastics, who were raising objections to the alchemist's contention that metals could change species in the process of transmutation. The alchemists were proving the truth of alchemy by means of pictures that confused reality with its painted simulacrum, and in particular, Constantinus here is appropriating imagery of the Trinity, so you've got Christ and the Holy Spirit, just the heads and the hands and the feet, and then the Trinitarian symbol below it. And this was to give his imagery the sanctity of the visions experienced by the saints. In this manner, the alchemists were moving their ideas from the ground of scholastic debate to that of the unquestionable truths of the Christian faith. And it gets wilder. Now this has always been a problem, the Buch der Heiligen Dreifaltigkeit, the book of the Most Holy Trinity. And, and this is the first appearance of um, the Virgin, in this case, the coronation of the Virgin. Now what they're seizing on is not just sort of the narrative of the story of Christ and the Virgin. They're seizing the iconic images that signify absolutely everything about authority, and they're using those. So we're getting her here, and then this is the first appearance of the Virgin that I wish to talk about, which is the apocalyptic Virgin from um, the Apocalypse of St. John. And here she's in her apocalyptic form, she's um, standing on the moon, She's, she's um, surrounded by the rays of the sun, and she should be crowned with stars, but she's not there. And this is the figure that we shall be uh, pursuing. This is around 1488. <coughs> now, this phenomenon in which Renaissance alchemists use traditional Mariology has been little remarked by scholars. There has been a recent monograph by Roberta Albrecht, which has examined the Catholic mysticism of the poet John Donne and his alchemical metaphors referring to the Virgin Mary. And that's a very useful entree, looking at the way that Catholic imagery was surviving, even in late Protestant England, and not covertly either, but quite openly. The image of the Immaculate Conception, which is what we're really looking at here, is generically related to two other types, namely those of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Apocalyptic Woman. So let's have a look at the apocalyptic woman, 1497 to 98, there she is. Now there's that crescent moon. Let me say this straight away, there is only one person who ever stands 
on the crescent moon anywhere, and that is the Virgin Mary. You'll find the crescent moon associated with both male and female signifiers all over the world. This is universal. But there's only one who ever stands on it or sometimes sits on it, and that's her. So wherever you get that image, it straight away is a Marian context. I mean, it is so unique that, 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 it, is, that it can only be Marian. And she's crowned with 12 stars. It's always 12. And this is the beast that's threatening to eat her. And she is pregnant with Christ. Now, I've designated these particular icons as generic types of the cosmic virgin. She's surrounded by sun, moon, and stars, planetary spheres. She belongs both to the human and divine realms, as material nature and as God's bride. She's in Christian theology, co-redemptrice with Christ, in the work of rescuing humanity and the cosmos from eternal damnation. Now, traditional Mariology provided an important resource for Protestant alchemists, such as Michael Meyer, Robert Flood, and Jakob Berman, all of whom were also of interest to um, the Surrealists, because it allows them the means to express the concept of nature as mother and nurturer and an intermediary between matter and the divine. And so Mary is also a form of Mercury, if you like, in alchemical theory, but I won't paste a work on that. This is perhaps the most famous one that is a book has just been published about this particular image. Um, it's Michael Myers' engraving of the apocalyptic woman, and it accompanies his account of an early 16th century treatise written by the Hungarian alchemist Melchior Chibinensis, in which the Eucharist is used as a symbol of alchemical transmutation, and she represents the feeding of the matter once it's been purified. The, the, the infant stone has been born and she has to be fed. Um, now, the, she never ever changes. She never changes. If it's the apocalyptic woman, and she's always with a child, unlike the Immaculate Conception that can appear with or without a child, but increasingly from the 18th, 17th and 18th centuries, she appears without the child. Um, she never changes. She isn't sexualized any further than that. Okay. Now. Okay, and there's another one of the apocalyptic form, and that's a particularly good one. And this is the standard image. Crown of stars, rays of the sun, present moon. And uh, also appears here in uh, Johann Daniel Milius. That's really about the limit of the apocalyptic woman. She does, however, <coughs> things do start to happen in alchemy to that particular image, where she starts progressively to be stripped off. And here what we have is the Book of the Most Holy Trinity, in, of again 1488, the same one that had the Holy Trinity, where the alchemical <coughs> virgin is appearing under the tree of life. In her solely Christian form, she'd appeared under the cross of Christ, which is a form of the tree of life. Here, she's beginning to appear under the alchemical tree, with the sun and the crescent moon to either side of her. Now, I'm going to pursue that particular line. I just want to say something about this image. This is another apocalyptic virgin in a very complete form. 
And this appears from um, this pseudo um, Nicolas Flamel, who inspired um, André Breton, that um, the, the treatise that Breton used was Les Figures d'Abraham le Juif, and the Virgin Mary doesn't belong to that set of illustrations. It belongs to another treatise dated to about 1750, probably nearly 100 years later, the Traité des Figures Hieroglyphes d'Abraham le Juif, um, and that is in the, Mellon, in, in the Mellon collection in Yale University Library. So the apocalyptic virgin doesn't get stripped off. She stays as she is. The immaculate conception is the one that strange things happen to. Now returning to the use of alchemy in a Protestant context, it was Francis Yates who revealed the interrelationship of the occult sciences with politically radical Lutherans. She referred to the 17th century alchemy of John Dee, Heinrich Kuhnrath, Michael Meyer, and Johann Valentin Andrei in the context of the war by the Calvinist Frederick elected Palatine against the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor. In fact, due to the conceptual imperatives of their own alchemical program, Lutheran alchemists were obliged to take recourse to Catholic iconography, specifically imagery associated with the Virgin Mary and the Eucharist. The overall antagonism to imagery on the part of the Protestant reformers may have precipitated a spiritual and a conceptual crisis. The ensuing void in religious practice I've suggested was partly alleviated by the development of elaborate engravings in alchemical and other magical books which were published in large print runs and I think were meant to be a kind of compensation to the stripped down uh, Lutheran theology actually isn't that stripped down, it's pretty close to Catholicism, but it felt stripped down. And um, Calvinists, who are very stripped down, were, were not um, on the whole alchemists. <coughs> now, three defunct aspects of religious practice reappear in alchemy. These were the visual hieratic icon, the doctrine of transubstantiation of matter into the body of Christ, and Robert Flood particularly appropriates this one, and the cult of the Virgin Mary. And these, these gave credence to the alchemical concept of a transmutation of base matter, and the alchemists couldn't do without them. Um, so if we come now to um, these images, you've got the apocalyptic virgin in Dura's image, you've got the alchemical apocalyptic virgin, and then you've got the official icon of the Immaculate Conception. The belief in the Immaculate Conception of Mary had originated in the Greek church, the Proto-Evangelium of James and the Gospel of the Infancy of the Virgin of Christ. And it was the Franciscan Dan Scotus in the 13th century who formulated the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. The concept was promoted in Spain from the 14th century by um, the Franciscan order and the Spanish Habsburg dynasty. And the iconography of the Immaculate Conception developed between the 13th and the 18th centuries. And both of them are related. They do have <coughs> the emerge with for the Immaculate Conception is based on the apocalyptic version. The iconography describes the popular view 
and it was popular long before it was officially accepted by the Catholic Church. In fact, several of the popes did resist it, as did some of the monastic orders, is that as a gift of God's grace, Mary was created free from the outset, from the original sin of Adam and Eve. <coughs> so, um, okay, now in the Apocalypse of St. John, there appears a woman clothed in the sun, we've seen this standing on the moon, and crowned with 12 stars. And by the 17th century, this was being used for this concept. The first image recognizable to modern eyes as that of the Immaculate Conception was created by Diego Velázquez. But the most familiar was developed by Bartolomé Esteban Murillo and Juan de Misa Valdez Leal in the early 17th century, and it is this that continues to be popularly venerated nowadays. In fact, it has become the standard image of the Virgin Mary um, and is incorporated also into the image of the Virgin of Lourdes and her other apparitions. Okay, now this image is interesting, became very popular in the context of the wars against Islam and the victories <coughs> of the West against the Turks in the 18th century. I don't know if you know this image. This is um, from a place called Kamienets Podolski, which is now in southeastern south Ukraine, but it was in Poland, or at least in the Commonwealth of Poland, Lithuania, in the 17th century. And what you have here is an 18th century image replacing a wooden image of the, the Immaculate Conception standing on an authentic Islamic minaret with the original crescent moon underneath her. There it is. It's still complete because in Islam, wherever, wherever has been a place of prayer has been a mosque, it remains sacred. And when the Turks were defeated in 1699, they asked the Poles not to destroy the, the, the minaret. And they didn't, but they put the Virgin on top. And you cannot find a more, a more uh, effective symbol of victory. In fact, I don't know of anything comparable to that, but the version of the pillar is a popular Baroque type of Marian image, but there's nothing like this, uh, so that really says it all. There were other types of immaculate um, conception before they used that one based on the apocalyptic woman, so Francisco de Zurbaran, um, the immaculate conception of saints Joachim and Anna. And this was the type they used before because she was conceived immaculately, not through sexual intercourse. Um, and so you have her parents. This also reappears strangely in alchemy, particularly in Johann Daniel Milius. Here he is in 1622. And she represents here the tincture. She hasn't got, oh, has she? One, two, five, nine. No, she's got 14 stars rather than 12. But she's between the sun and moon, her parents, who are kind of modelled on Joachim and Anna. And she stands in the middle there as the marriageable virgin who is to be wedded and bedded. Now we turn to Flood's ideas. Now Robert Flood, 1574-1637, was an Anglican Protestant and a physician to King James I of England. His ideas were influenced by Catholic doctrine and after his studies at Oxford in 1604-5, he'd undertaken an extended period of travel on the continent where he'd worked as a tutor to the children of Roman Catholic nobility in southern France. 
He'd also spent a winter with Jesuits who tutored him in the arts of magic in the mountains on the borders of Spain and France. And in fact, his critics accused him of being a covert Catholic, something that he rejected. But in fact, if you look at his alchemy carefully, there's no doubt that, that it is there. So the critical turning point in the employment of the image of the Immaculate Conception and the Apocalyptic Woman in Alchemy is this image from Flood's Macrocosm of 1670. It shows a naked woman with Marian attributes. Um, it's entitled Integra Naturae Speculum Artisque Imago. Um, it's the image of nature in the form of a, a mirror, a mirror of nature, a mirror of God. Now what she has is she has 12 stars. There's one around her head. There's one hiding behind her hair. <coughs> the 12 is a, a, a critical attribute of the Virgin. It represents the 12 graces of the Virgin Mary. It was developed by the Franciscans. She's got um, the, the sun on one breast and the crescent moon on the other, and then she's got the crescent moon across her, um, her pubic area. Her hair is loose, and um, she's related by flood to the mercurial spirit, whom philosophers call the spirit of the moon. So her left foot stands on earth, her right foot on water, <coughs> and the origins of this image are not only in that of the Virgin Mary, but also in the first Mary, the first Eve, or Mary as the second Eve. Imagery such as this, um, the old and the new Eves, Mary on the one hand with the cross of Christ, the naked Eve on the other with the skull representing death, Mary as representing the uh, as, as the new the, the, the image of the, the new Eve that, that saves humanity by giving birth to Christ. So that what Flood has done is he's taken the image of Eve and he has conflated her with the image of the Virgin with her attributes and he's put the two together as a specific alchemical image. Now, the problem begins to get even more interesting when you move on to Johann Daniel Milius, Milius in his Opus Medico Hymicum of 1680. Now, Milius copies furiously. Now, these books are selling like hotcakes, you know, like they're going out of fashion. There are thousands of these things, and people are hungry for sacred imagery, for spiritual imagery. And what we have here is his very own version. He's taken he borrows from Flood and from Maya. He's taken Flood's virgin. He's related her to the horned god. And that's another issue because the horned moon, the crescent moon, is an attribute also of males. So there's a problem about the Immaculate Conception and the Apocalyptic Virgin because that moon is as much a male attribute as it is a female one. And she now becomes the virgin Eve Diana, the goddess Diana, and she's now got a husband who's, if you like, the alchemical Adam. So she's associated with the moon, with the hunt, with Diana, with Actaeon, who was turned into a stag, and she is now paired. So in fact, the bride, the bride of God, which is the apocalypse, which is the, uh, the Immaculate Conception Virgin, has now become an alchemical bride, and she will be well and truly bedded in a minute. So, um, now it's not her nakedness 
that's the problem because of course um, you know nakedness doesn't have the same uh, meaning uh, sexual meaning necessarily um, in the Middle Ages and the Baroque that it does now it's not that that's the issue is that she is stripped off but she is also paired and she's appearing in this highly sexually charged context of alchemy and that in itself is enough to kind of open her up unfold her and reveal this this image of, of the bride right so there she is there and then just to sort of go back to masculine associations of the crescent moon right back to syria the lunar deity Alibol, who's standing on the left-hand side in this trinity of male sun gods from the first century of the Christian era. There's, of course, going to Indian um, uh, philosophy, uh, theology, Rudra, Pashupati, Vilod, animals who's iphthalic whenever he's associated with the present. He's got um, a, a, a full-scale iphthalic erection there. And the horned Celtic god of Chernunos, who we see appearing in Milius's um, image alongside um, the Virgin. <coughs> so, let's move on. Right, so once we've got her paired up, moving on with Milius in the Philosophia Reformata, he starts looking at another alchemical treatise, which was also a profound influence on the Surrealists. And this was the Rosarium Philosophorum, the Rose Garden of the Philosophers. And in this image from um, the Philosophia Reformata, he's got the male and the female in the middle of this interesting uh, geometrical conundrum as to how to square the circle, i.e. how to put together matter and spirituality to create um, give birth to the Philosopher's Stone. And you've got the cosmic imagery around, you've got the stars around this pair, you've got the sun, and you've got the moon. And this <coughs> is what you end up with. Um, now I'm really sticking my neck under the guillotine here in calling this a Marian imagery. But this, it cannot be anything else. Now the moon here, you could say, is Mercury, represents Mercury, and of course the Virgin Mary in alchemy also <coughs> represents Mercury. But I think that what it does, remember alchemy is an attic. It's an attic of memories, atavistic memories, strange things in the past. This is why psychologists and psychiatrists are so interested in it. This is why 20th century artists are forever mining it. It remembers things. And I think that what it remembers is the fact that you not only get a woman in the moon, you also get a man in the moon. And even though what this represents is that after the conjunction of the male and female principles of Mercury, i.e. Virgin, and sulfur, i.e. the sun, you get the bisexual hermaphroditic philosopher's stone. But they are still on the crescent moon. And if you like, the stars, in a sense, are the heads on the tree of life, which is now crowned with the sun. Um, what the alchemists, in a way, do is say, pull open an image, it explodes outwards. And things that were, if you like, originally stuck on to an image begin to appear at the sides. Um, I, I hasten, he, hesitate 
to use the name Jung because this is sort of a no-no if you're a historian. But the fact is, I think we're going to have to start looking at Jung again because even as nice leftist art historians we ignore Jung, the fact is that practicing artists are reading him like crazy. And he has been a major influence on 20th and on century and on contemporary art. And one of the things that he points out, and I just can't find anything else, I think that in postmodernist discourse, post-structural discourse, there's a concept called the production of excess. And this is certainly one thing that does, that alchemy does, it produces excess. But it also, um, it also expands outwards so that the stars are now alongside, the moon is alongside, and then you've got this kind of bisexual image in the middle. Now, going to the Rosarium Philosophorum, which inspired Maya, this appears from the 1550s, not always with imagery. Sometimes it doesn't have pictures, and sometimes it, it does. And they usually are exactly the same processes. So here you have the marriage, there she is, she's standing on the crescent moon again. She, the star is above her, and of course the sun is now her male consort. Now the important thing about the Rosarium is that when it depicts <coughs> the philosopher's stone, it shows an image of Jesus Christ rising out of the tomb. So it's one of the first places that you get this direct association between Christ and the Philosopher's Stone. It doesn't say so in the text. The text says nothing about Christianity, but it's in the pictures. So if Christ is the end product, then obviously his mother, the Virgin, is in there somewhere. And she is, and there she is, and she's about to be wedded. Okay, and she next appears stripped off. This symbolizes the sexual union. And you've got the dove, which is the spirit, the quintessence of alchemy, but also is drawn in the form of the dove, the Holy Spirit, the um, third person of the Christian Trinity is in there. And then again, in the Rosarium Philosophorum, you get these early stages, these things, these snakes in the chalice are associated with the cult of St. John the Evangelist, was reputed to have been poisoned by drinking a poisoned chalice of wine. And so that's always a reference. <coughs> that's always an apocalyptic reference. You've got um, this three-headed beast at the bottom, which is familiar. It goes back to the Ouroboros of alchemy in Greek alchemy. It also is associated with the beast in the, in the, in the apocalypse. The pelican feeding the, um, its infants is a, an icon of Christ. As is the serpent, that is also the serpent. It goes back to the mosaic imagery of the serpent around. So if you look at it very carefully, you'll find there are all sorts of hieratic Christian icons in there. And then, of course, you've got the stars. They represent the processes of alchemy. But there they are. And this is one of the... And then after this, immediately after this, you get the image of Christ rising from the tomb, which I've inadvertently not, um, not put in here. But there they are. They're both back, standing on the present moon, and with these particular signifiers. I think that's the last one. Well, to conclude this very fast <coughs> through this imagery, I think that if we take on different types
types of analytical tools. Put aside, um, not, not put aside the psychology um, and um, that sort of aspect, but if we use tools that look at these images as being more than hieroglyphs, but as being um, something that is hidden within an official image, and we get away from the idea that there are legitimate and illegitimate images, and that say, now of course to the church, um, these are illegitimate images, but looking at it from this way, if we look at them, instead of being oppositional to each other, and, and a deconstruction of an official image, but as something that can work along the same level, and can be opened up, we can read narratives from within it, and this of course is really what surrealism the surrealists did. They took an image of Italo Calvino, is also a very good example, and his castle across destinies. Do you know that? The way that he reads his figurative imagery is quite literally, and he can run all sorts of narratives from there. I think very much that this is what the alchemists were doing, that this was not a violent process attacking the church, but merely one which was resolving the image into its, its actual <coughs>
And I was just wondering if um, you could expand on, you mentioned um, the alchemical atoms, so I was just wondering if there's a male sort of version of this, there's a process with a male figure, that a similar one that happens in, in these images at this time, crisis of the Reformation. That's a very, very interesting question indeed. Um, it's not one that I've thought about at all as yet, but thank you for putting that into my mind, because obviously I do need to think about it. I suppose I've only just started by looking back into the anthropology of the image of, of kind of the, the, the male. Um, Adam and Eve, as a pair, do start appearing from the 15th century, and they start to be actually mentioned in the texts. And, and there's a very famous image in um, a manuscript in Padua, which Carbonelli actually illustrates. You can dig this up in the Warburg, they've got a photograph of it, of Adam on the ground. And in place of his palace, there's an enormous tree of life shooting upwards. I mean, it's absolutely, any time any of my male friends saw this, they would delight <laughs> man is a philosopher's stone. Um, and it actually has got Adam next to it, and it's got an Eve is there next to a skull. So she symbolizes death, if you like, which is the original story. And then Adam symbolizes life, which is just what you'd expect, isn't it? But um, that, that's all I can say. Um, uh, I think that Adam and Eve as such were not problems for the Protestant reformers because in the back of my mind, some rusty machinery is chugging on and saying they did use imagery of Adam and Eve as well. And in fact, um, it was um, Lucas Cranach, the younger, who developed a whole series of the old Adam and the new Adam, so that you have an image of the old Adam and the synagogue and all of that. And then you've got the new Christ and the Christian church. So that does begin to appear in the official iconography. Yeah. It's a very good question. Yes? Um, I'm Alex, actually. Um, and I was sort of wondering, I think this, this sort of um, transition that you trace from Rudolphine Protestant printing to um, anglicized versions of the same tradition are fascinating. But one of the things that's often cited in the discussion of flood and earlier English sources are, are Lulian and pseudo-Lulian influences. Yes. And I was wondering where, if, if at all, maybe, and I don't know the answer to this, of course, um, in Lul, uh, you see the same type of, of use of the virgin and the same type of feminine post-apocalyptic or... Yes, there, there is Milius actually has a whole series of medallions, there's about 50 of them, of the famous alchemists. When he comes to Raimundus Lullius, he shows the apocalyptic virgin. I did flash it up very, very quickly. And of course, I mean, Raymond Lull was never an alchemist. He wasn't. That was attributed to him probably in northern Italy in the late 14th century. But um, he was a, a great um, promoter of Marian, of the Marian cult, of the cult of the Virgin Mary. So um, when the alchemists choose to depict him, they show him in the company of the Virgin Mary. Um, in his own writings, in, in the alchemical texts of Lull, I don't remember any references to the Virgin Mary. There are references to Christ and to Christ as the stone, but not to the Virgin Mary itself. But the 17th century alchemist did see that link because, because of his, his Marian faith, his, his Marian support. He was a Franciscan, and it's of course the Franciscans that are promoting the cult of the Virgin Mary. And um, Duns Scotus, and then after him, um, St. Anthony of Padua particularly, 
I think he was the main figure that got the church to eventually accept um, the idea of immaculate conception. Yeah. I guess I'm just curious about the, the post-Lurian manuscript tradition and the illustrations that accompany these texts, which may or may not be informed by the titulary or by the texts themselves, whether or not that illustrated tradition sort of plays into your argument. I, I don't know how much anyone's even I, I did quite a lot of work about Null myself in the 80s, and I've published a couple of things in Ambix. But um, in the visual imagery, and particularly the famous um, manuscript that's in the Biblioteca Nazionale in Florence, that doesn't have any Marian imagery associated with it. In fact, it doesn't have any imagery of Christ either. It's, it's very much Mercury and, you know, and the, whole, the whole process there. Um, and I, I don't think Long himself, apart from that one mention, that one mention in Milius, he doesn't really come into this. But the real Lull, as, as a Franciscan follower, he was a, he was a tertiary. He wasn't a monk. He was a tertiary. Um, he does play into it because well, he's a great supporter. So it comes through the real Lull, but not through pseudo Lull. You know that I don't think that's Marian at all. No. We had a question, we have several hands up, first of all here. I'm Judith Noble. Um, it's just a very specific thing. In the second Milius, I think it's the second Milius illustration you showed from Philosophy of Reform Arts 1622, the Pelham there's the black bird, which is very obviously not the dove. I just wondered what was the... Oh, the, the black crow, it's, it's a common alchemical icon for death. It just means just death. death. Yes, yeah. uh, it, it appears all the time in the um, 17th century. It means death. It never means anything else. Thank you very much. And in fact, in the text, they talk about the crow's head, the, the stage of death. Yeah. I'm Italian Thomas, an artist and musician. Um, I'm just very interested in the idea of the conflict. You said there wasn't much to do that you were touching on with the conflict. It's very interesting how you depicted the Virgin Mary. But what I'm intrigued in is the way the alchemists were so maligned, given that they were complementing the imagery of, of the Catholic imagery that's still, um, of how Virgin Mary cult was shown. They were really trying to be complimented and supported. And I'm intrigued to see why they were so maligned. And, and well, they were kind of maligned and supported at the same time. Like, um, I've forgotten which pope it is in the 14th century who issued bulls against alchemy and is now shown to have been practicing it himself. I mean, one thing that the alchemists did promise you was the elixir of life that, that emerges from the 1370s, which is of great interest. And of course, the other thing they were promising was that they could coin, so you get kings of England in the Wars of the Roses, both Edward IV and the other side, employing alchemists who were producing really debased coinage, which they went to France to swap with the French troops in the Hundred Years' War. And the French kings had their own alchemists producing debased coinage, which the French troops were trying to pass on to the English. So, you know, so you have kind of official support as well in practice. But the, the, the problem is the scholastics couldn't accept it because you can't turn iron into gold, at least only in your dreams, or maybe if you're kind of top magician of, of the cosmos, at, at the time you could do it. I don't know who's got that post at the moment. You can of course do it with a nuclear reaction, and on the periodic table, mercury and gold are next to each other. It can be done. 
but you can't do it at home in your basement. <laughs> you need to borrow a nuclear reactor. It's just about quantitative easing. Yeah, so 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 you know, so of course, you know, they, they were they were it was never a university discipline, but no end of people practiced it. I've just come back from Krakow, where you have this whole wonderful, one of the best museums of pharmacy in the whole world. Three stories, and right at the bottom is the al alchemist's lab, which has more equipment in it than anything else. And it's sort of like the foundation of everything that's above it. Yes. I'm Eileen Moonbury. I was very convinced by all your, your interpretations of the images, but I wanted you to say a little bit about how much, how often there is, or, or how much it take you down for all. One can actually back that up by actually textual references to this, not necessarily in the same books, because I, I know that quite often they, I mean, most of them didn't refer to them as interpreters, but can one actually pin that they were interpreters? Do we have to mostly do it by looking at the images? Well, the Rosarium Philosophorum, which is one of the main promoters, doesn't talk about Christian imagery at all in its text, and it often appears without the images. When it does appear with the images, they're very often censored. And if you go to the British Library, you can find several texts and manuscripts there, because it appears also in manuscripts where someone's come along with black pen and rubbed out the imagery. I think this is why the Rosarium, which was so popular, doesn't talk about it in the text. The Book of the Holy Trinity does talk about it, but it doesn't talk about the marriage of the Virgin to Adam. It talks about the coronation of the Virgin, which is effectively a sort of a marriage image Anyway, it's got all the, the stylistic qualities of a marriage between two people. It's Christ crowning her as Queen of Heaven. It's effectively a marriage picture anyway, even in the official kind of imagery. So the Trinity, the, the Book of the Holy Trinity doesn't talk about the marriage of Mary as the second Eve to Adam, the alchemical Adam, but it does have the picture of the coronation, and that's its most famous image, which is effectively a marriage in the context of alchemy. It's a marriage. Now, there are textual references to the Virgin in Flood, who explains what she is. He doesn't talk about her marriage, and it, uh, the, it's Jakob Burma, who I didn't have time to talk about it, who doesn't do pictures of the Virgin, but does talk about the noble Virgin a lot. And he does talk about marriage, because the whole of Burma's cosmological universe is a great big kind of sexual explosion, and it's full of obstetric imagery and this kind of sexual violence throughout it. And so it's really with Burma that you get the solidification of that idea. I mean, this, this even in a Protestant context, you couldn't do this, because they're not Calvinists, they're Lutherans, and the Virgin still has a place in Lutheran theology, just as she does in Anglicanism, depending on what sort of Anglicanism it is. So she's still a revered figure, she's still St. Mary, even if she's no longer the Holy Virgin. So um, they, they only go so far, and it's the same with um, Maya's image of the Mass as being a representation of alchemical transmutation. He actually stops his Mass before you get to the Communion. He stops it, and he stops it at where you say the Ave Praeclara, the prayer to the Virgin Mary. But in the real Mass, you go on to the changing of the, of the wine and the bread into the body and blood. He doesn't do that. He stops. As it was, he was executed anyway by the Holy Roman Emperor for being too heretical. So you, you have to infer a lot 
And I realise that that cannot be conclusively tied up in a knot. But all you can say is, you know, look at this. You know, what else can it be? But Burma is the link. I think Burma is the link. Yes. I was wondering, this is a time period, but in a lot of the alchemy images, the virgin is, has a, um, maybe a string on yes. her wrist, yes. and I was wondering um, what that was if you see that in any other kinds of images. Right, well the string in the context of flood is something very specific. Um, one hand, forgotten which one, ties her to God above. And the other hand, of the other string, ties between an image of an ape underneath, mm -hmm. who is the ape of nature. So if you like, she's, she's tied to God. She's in between, like the tincture, which is both holy and a material, both spirit and matter. She's a between and betwixt image, like the Virgin Mary, who actually has a specific status in heaven. She, you give her a particular type of worship. It's higher than the saints and lower than the gods. Um, so the, that chain in flood, it, it represents her as an intermediary. Um, I don't recall her being chained in any other context than in flood. And he does explain in the text what, what that picture means very, very specifically. Um, I have another question. <clears throat> I was just wondering about this um, tree with the faces on it. Uh, right behind you, in fact. Um, <coughs> is that a very, is that a common yes. image to have? Yes, it, it's taken from the Rosarium. Once the Rosarium's done it, you would get it right through to the 19th century. And it's not always faces on a tree. Sometimes it just becomes a ladder or it becomes kind of just a zigzag, abstract path. But it represents the different stages of alchemy. And if you read books by people like Klosowski, de Roller, and all these French kind of... Um, would-be practitioners that always carry this aura of, I know more than you do about, about alchemy, you know, um, they will sort of make big hints that they know what the stages are and that there are 13 of them or there are 11 of them or there are 17 of them and they represent the particular steps in alchemy but what those steps are is anybody's guess. Because okay, um, you mentioned the link with the, um, with the stars. Yes. Um, and so, just, do you ever get um, the faces replaced with stars? Um, you sometimes get another tree, and this is in Pseudo Lull, where the faces, again in the, the Bibliotheca Nazionale Chandrali, where the faces are replaced with the faces of the planets. Yeah. And they're all shown to be grey and decaying in that. And, and then, then there's only six of them because the seventh is gold, which is right at the top, is a shiny little golden face. So sometimes they appear as that. Um, so they can they can represent planets, but there would be seven of them, including the sun. Thank you. Time for one, one last question. The, the, the tree and the faces, what, if any, do you think is the relationship between that and the classic ten uh, Sephiroth tree of life in the Well, there have, the people have written about this, and it has to be careful. It's Arthur weight. We wrote a very good paper saying that this review only ever really found one um, alchemical manuscript that used Kabbalistic imagery. And I think your question then sort of goes into another area is what happened to all this imagery from the late 19th and into the 20th century 
when you know Kabbalism and alchemy, and particularly with the tarot, you know, there's a lot of links that were made there um, after the Golden Dawn got involved. It's really the Golden Dawn that makes the links. So they don't, although the Golden Dawn never talks about alchemy that much. There are other types of um, Masonic alchemy that may have been also using Kabbalistic rituals. <coughs> wrote his PhD thesis on that, he's got a book on that. Um, there, there may have been, I mean, people also take it into kind of tantric areas and say these are images of kind of um, the Kundalini and things like that, but these are all late 20th century ideas. And I think that whereas artists are free to take this imagery and interpret them as they like, I think as historians, we have to be careful about periodization. I mean, the other thing I could have talked about was, of course, I didn't go into witchcraft and the present moon. And, I mean, that image is just getting bigger and bigger. If you sort of just do a Google search, you'll find all sorts of things sitting on the present moon nowadays and all sorts of stages of undress. But this is kind of us now. But it is interesting, and I think that certainly um, you get Kabbalism introduced into alchemy by... And Kunrath, and also by Flood, and most of Flood's texts are Kabbalistic. But I don't think it's, and, and he does do trees which have the Sephiroth, yes. He does do trees. Um, I think it's probably Flood you need to look at with his Kabbalistic trees there. I've forgotten them, but they are, they are important. Yeah. Well, the number of questions is testimony to the richness of, of our, uh, our opening talk. So please, thank you again. Uh, join me in thanking again. Thank you for listening to the Great Work Radio program. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse Wu's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com, that's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H dot com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program.